Uh, God gave me a word this morning, and I'm super excited to share it with you. Our passage today is going to come from Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 22. If you have your Bibles or your smartphone app, you can go ahead and pull this out and start turning there. <clears throat> Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, so it's really easy to find. It's also in my all-time top favorite four Gospels. That's a Bible joke if none of you got that. If you didn't get it, just ask the person next to you. And I will make a note not to tell that in second service again. <clears throat> Sorry, I thought that was funny, but apparently no one else did. It was, thank you. Thanks, Mom, appreciate that. <clears throat> okay, so uh, before we dive into the passage, I want to provide just a little bit of context. Because I like talking about the context before we dive into scripture. It's good to know what's happening, what was happening before we get in and read. So in this chapter that we're reading about today, this passage right before this is the triumphal entry of Jesus. So this is when he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey that he doesn't even own, which is a really cool analogy in and of itself. I'm not going to get into it, but he rides into Jerusalem riding a donkey that is borrowed, and people are excited about it. They're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they're waving palm branches, and they're laying down their coats in the dirt for Jesus to ride on. It was a really, really exciting time. And then right after that, Jesus goes into the temple and then starts yelling at people and screaming at them and turning over tables and kicking up money changers. And it was just, it was really exciting. Jesus was feeling a lot of feels that morning. And uh, for everyone watching, I'm sure that they were excited, mostly confused about that, about why he would be doing that. And so our passage picks up the day after that. So this took place in Jerusalem. That night they went to Bethany to stay the night. And then our passage picks up the next morning on the way back to Jerusalem, back to where he kicked people out of the temple. And this picks up the morning on the road there. So let's read at verse 18. It says, in the morning, as Jesus was returning to Jerusalem, he was hungry, and he noticed a fig tree beside the road. He went over to see if there were any figs, but they were only leaves. Then he said to it, may, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the fig tree withered up. The disciples were amazed when they saw this and asked, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? Then Jesus told them, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and don't doubt, you can do things like this and much more. You can even say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. You can pray for anything and if you have faith, you will receive it. It's amazing to me how much can be packed into just five verses of scripture. How much truth, how much revelation can be set in five verses alone. I wish I had time to talk about all of it, everything that's going on here, but unfortunately I only have so much time. And so I'm gonna break this into two parts so that we can talk about it a little bit better. The first part, we're gonna have the fig tree part about him withering the fig tree. The second part is gonna be him talking about prayers and moving mountains, okay? So the first part, the fig tree part. I don't know about you, something about this strikes me as odd. Maybe you felt that too when you read it. Maybe you've read it before and thought it was odd. It feels really out of character for Jesus to just come up and curse some rando tree just because it didn't have figs on it. Of the 40 or so miracles that Jesus performed while he was here on earth with us, this is the only miracle that's really considered to be a curse. In fact, in most Bibles, the header above this section of scripture 
reads the cursing of the fig tree or Jesus curses the fig tree, something to that effect. And it feels weird. This is really out of character because compared to the rest of the miracles where Jesus is healing or casting demons out, he's cursing this tree. He doesn't heal the tree, right? He doesn't tell the tree that his sins are forgiven. He just comes up, sees no figs and curses it and it withers and dies. And for what? Because he's hungry? Well, that doesn't seem right. And this is the same guy that fasted for 40 days out in the wilderness, was tempted by Satan himself to turn stones into bread to feed his belly, and he refused to do so. He didn't do anything for himself. All of his miracles were for other people. And so, see, the the pastor brain in me starts looking at this and thinking, "Mm, there's something else going on here. It's not just that Jesus was hungry. Now, I've never been accused of being the the smartest person in the room or the sharpest tool in the shed, but even I can tell that this is about something more than just a lack of figs for Jesus' belly. This story is also uh, mirrored in the Gospel of Mark. Mark tells the same story from his point of view, and he even notes that this isn't the season for figs. So that makes it even stranger. Jesus comes up and curses this tree for not having figs, when apparently it wasn't even supposed to have figs. So I decided to do some digging, as most good preachers do, and I decided to start doing some research on figs, because my only experience with figs comes from eating Fig Newtons as a kid. Are those still around? Yeah? Okay. I might have to buy some after this. Actually, are those even real figs in Fig Newtons? I don't know. Okay, anyway. Getting hungry, apparently. So what I found out is that figs are a seasonal fruit, like most fruits, and they grow on fig trees, and they start the fruit starts to grow around early spring, and it starts with little figlings. They turn, they're green and they're small, and after the figlings start growing, leaves come in and grow over the figs to cast a shadow so that they can grow and mature. And then as they grow, the figs mature around the beginning of summer. So beginning, middle of June, somewhere around there. This takes place around April. And so we would expect to see tiny little green figs under these leaves. And the thing about fig tree leaves is that they grow really big and they provide lots of shade for the figs underneath them. In fact, we read in scripture a lot that it wasn't uncommon for people walking by to stop and rest under a fig tree or sleep under a fig tree because of the amount of shade that they provided. There's actually stories right out of scripture where people will call out from underneath a fig tree. And so when Jesus comes up and sees leaves on this fig tree, he is assuming that there are at least tiny green figs underneath that he could eat because it says he was hungry. So he walks up and sees no fruit, nothing but leaves, and he apparently gets upset and curses the tree. So there was the promise of fruit But that promise returned empty because there wasn't any. It was sort of like a bait and switch, right? Like the classic Kmart. You guys remember that back in the day? Two people do, and I dated myself quite a bit there. (laughs) So there was the promise of, and we've all been there, right? We've all had the promise of something that we wanted only for it to return void or empty, right? Like uh, like that time that you drove up to Chick-fil-A and you pulled in the drive-thru and no one's talking back to you. And you look around and you realize there's no one else in the drive-thru. And then all of a sudden it hits you. Oh, it's Sunday. 
and Chick-fil-A's closed and I wanted waffle fries. Don't act like you've never done it because I do it all the time, okay? <laughs> see, there was the promise of Chick-fil-A. The sign was still up there, right? I could see the sign. The building was there. I pulled up and empty promise, literally because the building had no one in it. Or maybe some of you came today with a promise of hearing a great sermon from Pastor Brian and were a little disappointed when you saw my name on there. <laughs> it's okay to admit it. I understand. So we've all, we've all been there. We all understand what it means to have a promise unreturned and voided, even though it looked like there was going to be something there. So it turns out this miracle is called an enacted parable which is a fancy term that means that Jesus was using this miracle as sort of a live action parable to teach his disciples something. See, a lot of times Jesus spoke in parables, which was a great way to teach and a great way for us to learn. But most of the time, as far as we know, they were fiction. They were just stories that were told to convey a truth or a lesson. In this instance, this was a live action parable. This was happening right in front of them. Jesus was doing this miracle and cursing the tree so that he could teach them a lesson. And so the question is, what lesson was he trying to teach them? There's a lot of schools of thought and a lot of different things that I read. He could have been talking about the state of the temple at the time. Uh, remember the day before he was in the temple yelling and screaming and kicking people out. It's, this could have been a lesson about the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, or excuse me, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and how they kind of ran things. But there's another option, and this is the one that I kind of ascribe to, is that Jesus was teaching a lesson about the hypocrisy of looking like you were bearing fruit, but not actually doing so. This was a commentary on what it means to be a Christ follower, a faithful Christ follower. And as I thought about this, as I dug into this a little bit more, I began to wonder if sometimes... We, we misunderstand the actual meaning of faithfulness or we get the definition of faith wrong. See, sometimes we'll use faith in ways where we don't necessarily mean it. We'll say, oh, he was a, a faithful friend or she was a faithful spouse or he is a faithful employee when really what we mean is he was a loyal friend, a dependable spouse, a committed employee nothing wrong with those things, but I don't think they're interchangeable with the word faithful. Those are all good qualities to have. I don't think that they fully encapsulate, encapsulate what faithfulness means. Faithfulness is more in line with the word trust. It's about trusting God with everything that you have, being completely trustworthy to God and trusting your life into him putting yourself into the hands of God, into the will of God. But even more than that, as Jesus is teaching, truth faith needs to have evidence of it and needs to have fruit. You see, the purpose of a fruit tree is not wrapped up in the sheer existence of itself. The purpose of a fig tree is not to just be a fig tree. Its purpose is to bear fruit. Bearing fruit is how it directly interacts with the world around it, Bearing fruit is how a tree multiplies itself. And likewise, a Christian's purpose, a Christ follower's purpose, is not just to be a good Christian. It's not just to be a Christ follower. It's to bear fruit. And if we are truly Christ followers, or if we truly have faith in our Heavenly Father, then there better be some evidence of it. 
And it can't just be leaves. Nothing wrong with leaves. I like leaves. Everyone likes leaves. I mean, look what happens in the fall. The leaves turn from green to yellow and orange and red, and they're so pretty, and everyone takes pictures of them, and then they fall off, and they blow in the wind, and then they land on the ground, and you're crunching them like this, right? And then you rake them up for your kids to jump in, and you're wearing your hoodies and drinking your pumpkin spice lattes. Everyone loves leaves. They're fantastic. But it's not enough. We have to bear fruit. Leaves are kind of just for show, The hard work is in bearing fruit underneath those leaves. Now, I'm not a botanist. I I don't know a whole lot about horticulture. That's a hard word to say. I had to practice that a few times. Horticulture. I don't know much about that. I'm not even sure I have a green thumb. My sister-in-law bought me a succulent for Christmas, and she said, all you have to do is submerge it in water for 10 minutes once a week, and in a month, the thing was dead. (laughs) Sorry, sis. I forgot to tell you that. I, try, I really tried hard, but the, the silly thing still died. And so I don't know a lot about plants, but I would assume, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, but I can assume that growing leaves is a lot easier than growing fruit. Fruit takes a lot more energy, takes a lot more effort. It takes longer to bear fruit than it does to simply just bear leaves. And so the real work is in bearing that fruit. Scripture in New and in Old Testaments both are riddled with metaphors of what it looks like to bear fruit and how that applies to our lives as Christians, as Christ followers. There's literally too many to count, or at least, let's be honest, there's too many for me to count. And I didn't feel like counting it. I guess I could have Googled it, didn't feel like doing that either. But I found this really good example in the book of John. In John chapter 15, Jesus says this, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. I love that word, abide. Fruit comes from abiding in him and him in you. Bearing fruit is not done by my power, But by the power of the Holy Spirit living in me, it requires total surrender of my self-will to God's will. Fruit then by definition is the living spirit, the character of Jesus coming through and out of me, out of us. It's in how I speak. It's in how I act. It's in how I treat others. It's in my thoughts. It's in my view of the world. It's in my happiness. It's in my sorrow. It's in my getting up in the morning. It's in my laying my head down at night. It's in my everything. If I am a true Christ follower, I should be bearing fruit out of my life. And it's more than just that. It's also how I'm sharing the gospel. Bearing fruit is in my discipling. Earlier I said that a tree uh, multiplies itself by bearing fruit, right? It grows the fruit, someone comes up, picks the fruit, eats it, the seeds fall on the ground, it plants a new tree, and the cycle goes over and over. Tree, fruit, seed, tree, fruit, seed, over and over and over. The same way, in the same way, we should do that as well. We should be discipling others. We should be coming alongside others and walking this Christ-following life with them, teaching them what we know, learning together what it means to follow Jesus. 
and so that they can go and disciple other people as well. It's the same cycle over and over. That's what we're called to do. In fact, for the next two weeks, Pastor Callie is going to come up here and talk specifically about discipleship, about discipling. And so I'm not going to go into it too much because I don't want to steal her thunder, but I did promise that I would plug the 27th for her. Come next week, but apparently the 27th is supposed to be something really, really big. She wouldn't even tell me what it is. I have no idea, but she's excited, and so I'm excited, and so we should all be excited, and we should come on the 27th and invite friends, right? Right? Okay, there we go. Look, they clap louder for you than they clap for me. Is that good enough? Good plug? Good plug. Okay. (laughs) Moving on. Let's go to the second half of the passage. We're going to pick up at verse 20. I'm going to read it again in case you forgot or just need a refresher. It says, The disciples were amazed when they saw this and asked, How did the fig tree wither so quickly? Then Jesus told them, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and don't doubt, You can do things like this and much more. You can even say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. You can pray for anything and if you have faith, you will receive it. So the disciples see the tree wither and they ask Jesus how he made the tree wither or how the tree withered so quickly as if they didn't know that it was Jesus who made the tree wither so quickly. And Jesus sort of sidesteps their question about the how and decides to teach them a lesson about prayer, about fruitfulness and faithful prayer. He goes on and tells them that they could do the same thing to the tree that he did and more if they would just have faith in God and don't doubt. He tells them they can even lift a mountain and throw it into the sea. And this isn't the only time we hear Jesus tell the disciples that either. Earlier I told you that this story is mirrored in the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus tells them that there as well. But even earlier in the book of Matthew, chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus tells his disciples, You don't have enough faith. I tell you the truth, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. That's a pretty bold claim. That Jesus gives us. And it would seem as far as I can tell that it's not the quantity of faith, but rather the quality of faith that matters. I mean, think about it. A mustard seed is, is pretty tiny. So I would assume that a small amount of complete trust in God is better than a big amount of half-hearted trust in God. Jesus also specifically says, don't doubt. And I think sometimes that's hard for us. I know it's hard for me. When I was preparing this message, I had asked myself if I pray like that. Do I pray with complete faith, complete trust, complete doubtlessness in God? And since I asked myself that, I'm going to ask you that. Do you pray like that? Do we pray like that as a church? Do we pray with absolutely no doubt? I don't, I don't know if I always do. I can tell you that God's been teaching me specifically a lot about prayer lately about praying with certainty, praying with complete trust, complete faithfulness, praying with expectation, expectation that God will move. Do we pray like that as individuals, as a corporate church? Do we pray with expectation for God to move when he hears our prayers? And if we don't, why? 
Why is that so hard for us to do? I mean, this is, this is God after all. This is the same God that we just sang about earlier in that song titled, Same God. Did you know this is the third week in a row we've sang that song? That is a powerful song. We weren't supposed to sing it today, but I asked the worship pastor because I have an in with her, if we could sing it one more time. Because that is such a powerful song. Those words, the same God, the God of Moses, the God of Mary, the God of David. This is the same God who created the entire universe. The same God who made millions of galaxies with billions of stars in them. The same God who knows the hairs on your head. The same God who knew you before you were even in the womb. This is the same God. And we can't trust him to move a mountain. We can't trust him with our prayers. I don't want to be rude, but what kind of faith is that? And I'm talking to myself here as well. I had to really think and pray about this. What kind of faith is that? Are we really abiding in him if we don't come to him with complete doubtless trust? Are we capable of bearing fruit if we don't put complete faith in him? Sometimes I have trouble praying to God because I can't find my AirPods. I've lost them and I don't come to him because I think it's beneath him. But that's not trust. That's not faith. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 30. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? If I, have, if I have faith for the big things, I have to have faith for the small things. And the opposite is also true. If I have faith for the small, I need to have faith for the big. And that's not enough either because Jesus takes it a step further. He says, pray for anything. And if you have faith, you will receive it. Do we pray for anything? Do we pray for everything? Because according to Jesus, that's what a fruit-bearing faith does. But, and yes, there's a but in here. I know what some of you are thinking. I know the question that pops into your mind as I'm talking about this. I know the question you would ask me. Pastor Jake, why aren't my prayers answered? I'm faithful. I trust in God with my whole life. I'm doubtless in my prayers. Yet, why are my prayers? prayers not answered why did God not heal why did God not provide why did God not fill in the blank and this is kind of where the rubber meets the road this is where it really gets hard see a lot of people would see that verse Matthew 21 22 and see it as an open-ended statement that you can pray for anything you want and you will receive it. And if you don't receive it, if your prayer is not answered, well, then you probably just didn't have enough faith. You ever been told that before? That your prayer didn't get answered because you didn't have enough faith? That's not true. And if you've been told that, if you are living this fruit-bearing faith that we're talking about and have doubtless trust in God and pray the way he wants you to and your prayers aren't answered, it's not because you don't have enough faith. And I apologize if you've been told that. I mean, if you think about it, that's uh, honestly a little silly. It's not like God has a faith meter that he's counting. And if you pray with only this much faith, then you don't get what you want. And if you pray with this much faith, you get everything with you want. That's not how... 
God works. But sometimes when we're reading scripture, we can't just take one verse out of the mix and decide that that's it. We have to look at the story as a whole. We have to look at it in the context and we have to look deeper than just one verse. In this case, we need to pull back out of this passage of Matthew and look further into the rest of the book of Matthew to find the answer to this, to find the other side, the counterpoint to this. And before we do that, I want to lay a little bit of foundation since we're talking about prayer. I want to jump to, and I know I'm going to jump around a little bit here, so I apologize. We're going to jump to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. This is where Jesus tells his disciples how to pray. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That is the key right there. His will be done. Let's jump to another passage again. And in this passage, we see an unanswered prayer. We're going to jump to Matthew 26. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the night where he gets arrested and put on trial, eventually leading to his beating, his flogging, and his death on the cross. And so him and his disciples go to the garden to pray. And the scripture tells us that Jesus was in deep, deep sorrow about the events that are going to transpire. These are his words. Matthew tells us in verse 39, he went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Jesus, the son of God, being 100% man and 100% God, is crying to his father for this cup of suffering to be taken away. He does not want to do this. He desires to not die a terrible death on the cross. And yet, Jesus' prayer goes unanswered. God did not take away this cup from Jesus. And you can't argue that Jesus didn't have enough faith because, well, it's Jesus, frankly. I mean, you can't, you can't tell me that the Son of God, being God himself, did not have enough faith in God. So why then? Why was his prayer not answered? It's because it wasn't God's will. Despite Jesus praying for this cup to be taken away, he still prays for God's will to be done over all. And so the answer to the question of why God didn't answer your prayer is because it wasn't in God's will. And inevitably, the next question that you would ask would be, why wasn't it in God's will? And hear me now, because I have a real deep theological revelation I'm going to reveal to you right now. Why was it not in his will? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't think any man knows the will of God. Sure, he gives us visions. He gives us a word. He gives us uh, thoughts or ideas. Or sometimes he'll reveal plans about our future. But no one can come. No one can... Uh, Lost my train of thought there. No one can say that they know the complete will of God. And if they do, turn around and walk the other way from them. That's just not how this works. But remember, this is the same God 
that we sang about earlier. Which means if it's the same God who answers our prayers, if we have faith and trust and doubtlessness in the God who answers our prayers, then that means we also need to have all that in the God who doesn't answer our prayers. If we have faith, if we have fruit-bearing, trusting faith in God when our prayers are answered, then we need to have that same fruit-bearing faith that same doubtless trust in God when our prayers are not answered. If we have trusting faith in God when he says yes, would we still have trusting faith in God when he says no? And if the answer to that question is no, then did you really have complete trusting faith in God, the Father Almighty? Or did you have complete trust and faith in God, the vending machine? See, vending machines don't have wills. It's a simple input-output device. I put my money in, I push the button, I get what I want out. And if I don't put enough money in, I push the button, nothing happens. There's your faith meter right there. That's the comparison. Sorry, Jimmy, uh, if you only had 10 more cents of faith, you probably could have gotten your prayer answered. Better luck next time. That's not how God works. God's not a vending machine. God has a will. And it's our faith that must submit to his will above all, not the other way around. It's our faith that must trust his will above all, even when it means suffering for us. Real faith is believing when the answer is no. And I get it. Sometimes that's really hard. Most of the time that's hard. Sometimes God answers our prayers with a yes. Sometimes he answers prayers with a yes, but not in the time that we wanted. Or sometimes he'll answer a prayer with yes and not in the way we wanted. But sometimes he answers it with a no. And even when he does that, we still have to have complete fruit-bearing trust in him our faith should not waver in him in daniel 3 we read the story of three men shadrach meshach and abednego and we read the story about how these three men would not bow to the king nebuchadnezzar i don't have a whole lot of time to go into the story so i'm going to summarize it for you really quick these three men Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar was so full of himself, he demanded that everyone bow down to him. He even built a giant gold statue and demanded that everyone bow down to the statue of him. And when these three men refused to do so, it infuriated Nebuchadnezzar. So much so that he brought them into his palace and threatened to throw them in the furnace if they would not bow. Listen to their response. Verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. He will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But, but, even if he does not we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. 
our God will deliver us. He will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, even if we burn alive, he is still our God. Amen? That, that is a trusting faith. That is a fruit bearing faith, doubtless trust in our God, no matter what the answer is, that we would submit to his will above all. I don't, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I want to open the altar for us right now. The altar is always open, but I wanna have a specific small time where you can come forward and pray. And if you want this kind of faith, if you need this kind of faith, or maybe you had it and you lost it and you want it back. If you want to live in complete doubtless trust in God, the Father Almighty and not God, the vending machine, come and ask for it. This is your time, church. Come forward and pray or make an altar right where you are and pray and ask God to give this to you. Ask God to fill you with strength so that we can have this fruit bearing faith. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for showing up in our worship. Thank you so much for showing up in the word that you gave me, God. Oh, I love you so much. And more than anything, I want to have a fruit bearing faith in you. I want to have complete doubtless trust in you above all else. God, make us like this. God, make our church this way. Please, we beg you, make PFN a fruit-bearing church. God, Pekin needs fruit-bearing Christ followers. Pekin needs people who will follow you no matter what. God, make us a church this like this. Make us a church that can bear fruit. Make us a church that can go out of this building and share the gospel and be Jesus through it all, through thick and thin, through happiness, through sorrow, through whatever life gives us, God. We want to trust you above it all. We thank you. We thank you for delivering on your promise. We thank you that you are the same God as you were yesterday and today and forward, God. Thank you for being that same God to us. And we pray that we would always, always, always trust in that same God. I pray your blessings on this church. I pray your blessings on this day, on this week. Help us to go out of this building and put our self-will into your will, God. We love you. Thank you. Amen.